Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. Uh, love. Love that we can never earn or deserve, but you give it to us freely. We actually deserve the exact opposite. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment because of our sin. But we thank you that even though we have sinned, your love has remained steadfast. And you demonstrated your great love by stepping off your throne, coming into this world, dying as a substitute in our place, paying the penalty we deserve for sin. And Lord, today as we open the scripture, I pray that you will give us a fresh insight into the depth and the magnitude of your love, and that we will also grow as followers of you as a result of our time together now. So we lift up this time in your name. Amen. Today we're continuing our series called, Who Do You Say I Am? And we're specifically going to be looking at Jesus through the eyes of Judas. Now, if you're to make a list of some of the biggest villains of the Bible, Judas would certainly be right up there around the top of that list. This is why you pretty much never see any boy or man named Judas, do you? I mean, you see pretty much every other disciple that Jesus have have men and boys here today um, who share names with those disciples. I mean, you have Peters and Jameses and Johns and Andrews and Phillips and Simons and Thomases and Matthews. You even occasionally meet someone named Thaddeus or Bartholomew. But you pretty much never meet anyone named Judas. I have never heard a set of parents say of their son, you know, I hope when my boy grows up, he is just like Judas. No one ever says that type of thing. Now, we probably know what Judas did and why he's such a villain. If you don't know, if you aren't quite sure, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But there's a great cloud of mystery that surrounds why Judas did what he did. My hope is, as a result of our time together now, that we will come to greater clarity on why Judas did what he did. We're going to clear up things by asking, essentially asking Judas, who do you say Jesus is? I invite you to turn in the Bible this morning to John chapter 13. And if you did not bring a Bible or would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1085. Now in the Bible, there frankly is not that much written about Judas until you get to right around the time of Jesus' betrayal. Now in the passage that we're going to start in today, in John chapter 13, we're going to see Jesus with his disciples, including Judas, sharing the Passover meal together. And this event is known as the Last Supper. Now I invite you to follow along as I read, starting in verse 21 of John 13. It says there that during the meal, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, Is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. So we see here that there was a betrayer among Jesus' disciples. He says it very clearly in verse 21, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples, when they heard that, they were stunned. And I think, how, how really could they not be? I mean, they had all spent the last three years together, sharing their lives together. They were a band of brothers by this point. And so it was shocking to hear that one of them was going to betray Jesus. Now in verse 22, it says the disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. Literally, it says they stared at each other. They were just in absolute shock at what they just heard. Now there's something here that I think is easily taken for granted, but I want to point it out just so we recognize it. And it's that the disciples had no idea who the betrayer was. They had no idea. Matthew and Mark, who also record uh, this account in, in their biographies of Jesus, they said that several of the disciples turned to Jesus and asked, Is it me? Am I going to betray you, Jesus? So we see that they were wondering who the betrayer is. They had no clue who it was. Now, Peter... He couldn't help himself. He had to know who is the betrayer. He, he wanted to know, but he, in that seating arrangement around that table, he was pretty far from Jesus. So he motioned to John, another disciple who was sitting right next to Jesus. He motioned to John, hey, find out from Jesus who the betrayer is. And so we read that John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now the other disciples, they did not know why Jesus gave that bread to Judas. They didn't overhear that conversation leading up to that. But they all heard Jesus say, what you're going to do, do quickly. But even still, the other disciples did not know that Judas was the betrayer. They didn't suspect Judas yet. Now John, who again was one of the disciples sitting right next to Jesus at that point, he, he wrote this account that we're reading right here in John 13. He said, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So except for Peter and John, none of the disciples suspected that Judas was the betrayer. They still thought, even as Judas was going to exit in a few moments, that Judas had pure motives. Now he did exit. In verse 30 it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And he was going to finalize details of betraying Jesus. You see, the night before... Jesus had met with Jewish leaders in order to work out a deal for how Judas would betray Jesus into their hands. And now, in a few hours after he's exiting that last supper, 
He's going to lead some Jewish leaders. He's going to lead some Roman soldiers to where Jesus is so that Jesus could be arrested. And that arrest is going to take place under the cover of night in a secluded location. And Judas is going to betray Jesus with a kiss. He's going to identify Jesus to the authorities by kissing Jesus. Now think for a moment about that kiss. I mean, what a sadly ironic way to betray Jesus. And it kind of reminds me of if you have a husband who's been cheating on his wife and the wife finds out about it, and the husband has the audacity to show up at the wife's door, to knock on the door, and to have right next to him there the woman with whom he's committing adultery. He's standing there at the door with this woman. His wife opens the door, and when the wife opens the door, he leans in and kisses his wife. And you think, what a bold act of betrayal that would be. But that's essentially what Judas is doing to Jesus. And with that, Jesus was taken away. He faced an unfair trial. He was tortured. And then he was crucified. Now, each week in the series, we're essentially asking a person or a group of people, who do you say Jesus is? So that raises our question for today, which is who did Judas say that Jesus was? Who did Judas say Jesus was? And people have been debating this question for the last 2,000 years. You know, people wondering, you know, who to Judas was Jesus? Why did Judas decide to betray him? Well, we're going to dig into that topic now, but I want to, as we dig into this topic, be very careful to distinguish fact from conjecture. Now, the Bible definitely reveals to us facts about Judas, but at the same time, the Bible doesn't tell us super clearly why Judas betrayed Jesus. That's why there's the debate over it. But there is enough in Scripture to make some educated guesses, to make some hypotheses and conjectures about why Judas may have betrayed Jesus. So we're going to do that now. We're going to identify seven facts along with two hypotheses based on the facts about Judas. So, the first fact is that Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he had a large following of people. And early on in his ministry, he called out 12 men from that crowd to be part of his inner circle. He was going to spend three years investing in these men so they could become his representatives, so they could lead in the ministry and in his mission when Jesus was no longer here. And Judas was part of that inner circle. He was one of the 12 disciples. Another fact is that the other disciples did not sense anything amiss with Judas. You can see that very clearly by the disciples' reaction when Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him. I mean, when Jesus said that, that one of you is going to betray me, did they all say, hey, hey, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's Judas? No, they didn't say that at all. Instead, many of them asked, is it me? They suspected themselves more than they they suspected Judas. And then even when Judas departed the supper, they didn't say, ha, we knew it was him the whole time. No, they still thought that he had pure motives in whatever he was going to be doing. And so to the other disciples, they didn't sense anything that was wrong with Judas or what he was doing. And this leads to a hypothesis. 
The hypothesis is that when Judas became a disciple, he was not planning to betray Jesus. You think about how sometimes you get a terrorist, and a terrorist enters a country undercover. They have a plan, though. They don't want this plan to be known. But they have a plan just to blend in and then to make preparations so that at the right time, they can wreak havoc on unsuspecting people. That's what terrorists oftentimes do. But you look at Judas, he does not act like that type of terrorist. There is no evidence that when he became a disciple, that he had a plan in place to, at the opportune time, betray Jesus. I mean, he didn't team up with the Jewish leaders in this betrayal until one day before he actually carried the betrayal out. Just one day. So it's not a long, premeditated plan that Judas is carrying out against Jesus. What we see instead is that something in Judas' mind changed over time. That Judas's view of Jesus changed. And let's come back to some more facts. Another fact is that near the end, Judas's priorities differed from Jesus's priorities. Let me read it for us in a fascinating passage in John chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. It says that Mary, this is a friend of Jesus, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus told Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus in this passage just received an extravagant act of worship. And he deeply appreciated it. But when Judas saw what took place, he was upset. He'd expressed how upset he was. But then he was rebuked by Jesus in front of the others. And Jesus said, no, what this woman has just done is prepare me for burial. For burial. And so what happens here is they have a difference in values and priorities between Judas and Jesus. Rather than Judas rejoicing in this beautiful act of worship and rejoicing in Jesus' glory, he's focused on himself. He's focused selfishly. And we see this even more in the next fact that Judas was greedy for selfish gain and was already betraying Jesus and the disciples. Because did you catch that Judas was stealing from the money bag? See, Judas had been entrusted with the responsibility of being treasurer for Jesus and the disciples. But evidently, sometime later, it was discovered or revealed that Judas had been stealing from the money bag. Now, we don't know how long he'd been doing this, but at this late juncture in Jesus' ministry, it's clear that he's focused not on benefiting others, but on benefiting himself, which shows that he had already compromised in his commitment to Jesus. Another indicator in this really very next part of the passage of Judas' focus on selfish gain 
We're going to read it from Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. It says that then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So Judas had gone to the chief priests, and he wanted to know how he could benefit from betraying Jesus. He asked, what will you give me? So he was focused, again, on selfish gain. Now there's another fact I want to point out here. It's that Judas was influenced by Satan. This is pointed out a couple different times surrounding the account of the betrayal that Satan entered into Judas. Now Judas made himself vulnerable to this type of attack when he willfully sinned against Jesus and the disciples, when he hardened his heart toward Jesus. And Judas and Satan just was more than happy to make the most of the opportunity. But I think it's also important to recognize that Satan doesn't deserve all the credit for the betrayal because Judas was also responsible. He had a choice to betray Jesus, and he did so on his own volition. Now, there's another fact I want to point out now, and this fact is broader than just Judas. It's kind of the broader Jewish culture that would have influenced Judas. It's that the predominant Jewish perception at the time was that the Messiah would be a powerful ruler who would overthrow the Roman rule of Israel. So in the Jewish mind, the Messiah would be kind of like Superman who would fly in in order to save his people from trouble. The common view back then among the Jews was that the Messiah would be a political ruler or a military ruler who would set up an earthly kingdom and really cause Israel to become triumphant over all the other nations. And Jesus experienced this expectation a number of times through the course of his ministry when people were expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom. But the fact is, Jesus did not fit the expectations for the Messiah, especially when he predicted his death. Because rather than Jesus talking a lot about power and about wealth and about the supremacy of Israel over all the other nations, instead Jesus talked a lot about humility and about serving other people. And his disciples got all bent out of shape when Jesus talked about dying. I think, for instance, of the Apostle Peter. Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about his upcoming suffering and death. It says that Peter then took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that audacity to rebuke Jesus? But that's what Peter was doing. Because he didn't like the idea of Jesus suffering and dying. None of the disciples liked that at all. Can you zoom ahead to Matthew 26? That woman just married, just anointed Jesus with that expensive perfume. It says in Matthew 26, verse 12, that, that um, Jesus then said that she was preparing him for his burial. Now, just two verses later, it says that Judas went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. Just two verses after Jesus talked about his burial, Judas is going to betray Jesus. There's a chronological connection there between Jesus talking about his burial directly to Judas and Judas then going to betray Jesus. A chronological connection there. And so this all kind of ties together to lead to our big hypothesis of the day. And the big hypothesis is this, that Judas became disillusioned with Jesus. 
They became disillusioned with Jesus. That when Jesus talked about his burial, that was the final straw. It was time to jump ship and benefit however he could. And I strongly believe that this is the reason why Judas betrayed Jesus. You put all the facts together. I think this is the reason why he was disillusioned. He had become Jesus' follower, expecting Jesus to become a political messiah who would deliver Israel and set up an earthly kingdom. And Judas expected that because he was in Jesus' inner circle, he would personally benefit from that. But as the months and years passed, Judas realized that this was not the type of movement that Jesus was leading. And what was most troubling to him is that Jesus kept talking about dying. You know, Superman can't die, can he? The Messiah can't die. Superman needs to come in and save his people. Yet Jesus keeps talking about dying. And Judas doesn't like where this is going. He feels like he's on a runaway train that's careening toward a cliff. He doesn't like this at all. On top of this, perhaps even he's worried that Jesus might do something to provoke his death that's going to end up damaging Israel. So Judas here is bailing out. He's having Jesus arrested in order to put an end to this nightmare. He figured he can make some money off the process as well. And putting the pieces together, I, I think it's a very strong hypothesis for why Judas betrayed Jesus. So we come back to the question, who did Judas say that Jesus was? I, I think that if you asked Judas that question, his answer would be different if you asked him at the beginning of Jesus' ministry compared to at the end of Jesus' ministry. I think at the beginning, Judas was fully on board with Jesus. But I think by the end, Judas saw Jesus as a letdown. He hoped for a powerful deliverer for Israel, but was disappointed and disillusioned. You know, disappointment and disillusionment are very powerful experiences. Let's just take it outside of the Bible and the spiritual realm for a minute. Just talk about what it's like to be disillusioned in just other parts of life. I think, for instance, of how a couple weeks ago my wife Shelley and I were on vacation down in Mexico. And there's one resort that we like so much that this is our sixth time going to that resort. That's how much we like it. But I will tell you that on the evening of our first full day there this last year, just a couple weeks ago, I was getting very disappointed in the resort. Because a lot had changed since the last time that we were there a couple years ago. And we were very disappointed by those changes. And there were a number of things that conspired to happen over the course of just a few hours that evening that were disillusioning me. For one, we were hungry and we wanted to go out to dinner. But one of the things that happened that, that frustrated us was that the resort was building to add more people who could be in the resort. But they had reduced the number of eating options, number of restaurants available in the evening. So we went out to eat. We, and it's a massive resort. It's hard to get out of the resort. Um, we just like to eat at the restaurants on the resort. So we went to a restaurant, and the wait was just massively long. We didn't, want, we didn't want to wait for two hours to eat. So we went to another restaurant, another massively long wait. But, I mean, we could see it was a long wait. People weren't even waiting on us. No, no other employees there even paid attention to us. We are getting frustrated. I finally decided... You know, it's going to be the same other restaurants we go to as well. And so we decided, okay, let's just go to the on-site grocery store. I'm going to get some peanut butter and jelly. 
We'll just eat that tonight. So I went there, standing in line at the on-site grocery store with peanut butter and jelly in my hands. I looked down at the, you know, the jar of peanut butter. It was $10 for a little jar. I thought, no. And thankfully, Shelly figured out you can get this other jar of peanut butter that's cheaper. So we did that, probably paid like $7 for it. So I was hangry. I was not happy at all about this stuff. I mean, other things were piling on as well, not even related to food. On top of that, the resort had significantly increased the required fee this year, so it was quite a bit more expensive. Just not happy. Disillusionment was setting in. And when disillusionment settles in, it is very powerful. I mean, I was not happy, not looking forward to the rest of the week. And, and on top of that, I mean, we began to talk about how, you know, we've come here for the last six years. We've liked this resort a lot, but it's changing. For future years, we need to start looking at other resorts. This one doesn't hold as much appeal to us anymore as it used to. Now, thankfully, the next day we figured some things out. My outlook significantly improved. I wasn't hangry anymore. I figured out how to handle dinner. And, and we ended up having a great vacation. And frankly, by the end, even though the resort still had some quirks, I even liked the resort by the end. And we'll probably go back there again. But you know what? This all shows the power of disappointment and disillusionment. It can happen toward a resort and vacation. It can happen toward um, another person. It can happen toward a store. I've heard people talk about, you know, it's a bad experience they have at the store, and they're done with that store. They're disillusioned with it. It can happen toward a school. It even happens toward churches. People get disillusioned. And then they're like, nope, I'm done. You know, sometimes disillusionment is legitimate. Other times it's an overreaction. Sometimes we're able to recover from disillusionment, like I did with the resort. Other times, instead, the disillusionment just settles into our heart, turns into bitterness, and we cannot overcome it. And that's what happened to Judas. You know, and many people become disillusioned with God because he does not meet their expectations. So it raises a question for all of us. Have you experienced disappointment or disillusionment with God? I mean, have you ever looked at your life and thought, you know what, I've been following all the rules. I've been trying to honor God, but still what I wanted to happen isn't happening and I'm upset with God about it. Or have you ever just looked at your circumstances or circumstances somewhere else around the world and just thought, you know what, this doesn't make sense. I don't like this at all. Does God even care? These types of perspectives and experiences can lead to disappointment and disillusionment with God. I mean, you look at Judas. He wanted the Messiah who would deliver people from their trouble. He wanted Jesus, essentially, to step into a phone booth to rip open his robe and to come out of that phone booth with the big Superman S on his chest and save his people from their troubles. And Jesus didn't do that. But lots of people believe in Jesus just like Judas did. Lots of people are looking for a Jesus who will save them from their troubles, who will fix their problems. And when he doesn't come through like that, they get angry. They get frustrated. They get disappointed. They get disillusioned and bitter. And sometimes even walk away from Jesus. Unfortunately for Judas, his ending was not good. I mean, he, he did feel a deep remorse. 
after betraying Jesus, which I think shows that he still has some soft spots in his heart. But unfortunately, he ended up taking his own life quickly after he betrayed Jesus, which I think is especially unfortunate because if he had held on for just a few more days, he would have seen that for Jesus, death wasn't the end. He would have seen that Jesus was resurrected. He would have had the opportunity for forgiveness and redemption. It would have been a beautiful story. But instead, that didn't happen for Judas. But we have to understand that Jesus did come to offer forgiveness and redemption for everyone who will receive it from him, no matter what they did in their past. You know, Jesus is not the type of Messiah that people were expecting. He came to address the most important and the most fundamental problem that people have, which is our sin problem, our sin that separates us from God. And that mission of redeeming us from our sin required him to go to the cross. Jesus' death was truly central to his mission for which he came to earth. Even though Judas and the disciples did not understand that they all struggled with the idea of his death. They were all in despair when Jesus died. Judas just took it farther than the others. But Jesus' death was central to his mission of redeeming us. Now let's mentally rewind to the Last Supper, which is when Jesus predicted his betrayal. After Jesus left that meal, Jesus took bread and then the cup and he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for us a reminder and a representation of Jesus' death on our behalf. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to obey Jesus now and celebrate together the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus' death on our behalf, to celebrate the reason why he came to redeem us from our sins. You don't have to be a member or a regular attender to join in the Lord's Supper with us today. Instead, if you're someone who's trusting in Jesus to reconcile you with God, you're not trusting your own good works, not thinking, oh, my religious activities are enough to merit favor in God's eyes to reconcile me with God. No, if you recognize I'm a sinful person, and I'm in need of a Savior, and Jesus is my Savior, you're welcome to join with us today. If you did not yet get one of these communion kits, I encourage you to go to the back right now and get one. You can raise your hand and they'll be brought to you. I encourage you to get one. The bread in this kit represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. He did this because he loved us, paying the penalty we deserve for our sins. So I invite you now, if you're partaking in communion, to take off the top layer of this communion kit to release the bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talked about the Lord's Supper. He said, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. We now open the other tab to release the juice. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. Again, it's a love that we can never earn or deserve, but you give it to us freely by your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that your love compelled you to go to the cross, such an excruciating death that was central to your mission because without your death, we could not be redeemed. We could not be reconciled because someone had to pay the death penalty, either us or you. And Lord, we're thankful that you did. So I pray that each one of us will be trusting and fully in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, again, we thank you. Thank you that you paid the entire penalty that we deserve. And there's nothing left that we have to do to earn favor in your sight. Just to come to you by faith, saying, Jesus, I need you. And Lord, I pray that you will empower us to live by faith. We thank you even when we falter, even when we struggle, even when we doubt, even in those times we've turned our backs on you, there's always the open offer of forgiveness and redemption when we turn back to you. We thank you for your grace, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.